0: you and uh, today we have the great privilege of being able to talk about Jesus and talk about something very special he's doing in our lives and of course it just doesn't get any better than that you know what happens when someone of significance in your life really believes in you and affirms you and supports you and trusts you in something that you're doing well we all know the answer it's absolutely wonderful incredible I'm in the season of life where now I'm a grandparent. It is one of the great seasons of of life, to be sure. Six grandkids, now all age five and below. So you can kind of estimate the volume in our house when everyone is together. Uh, You know, it's a funny thing. You, You can have a hard, tough, challenging day, and when you go into the home of one of your grandkids and they see you and they start yelling, Grandpa, running down the hall, jumping all over you. You know, in the NFL, that's a 15-yard penalty. But for a grandparent, it's a touchdown. It is wonderful. There's nothing quite like it. You know, it's wonderful because we want our lives to matter. And I think we understand our lives matter in our connection to people and our connection to God. It's how we touch others, how we affect others, and how we affect or touch the things that God is doing that really matters in life. And sometimes the big question we struggle with, is this even possible for us as people? Can we make that kind of difference? Or even as churches, do what we do, does it matter in any kind of significant lasting way? Now, Jesus Unexpected is the theme of this message series. And we've looked through the Gospel of Luke, and we've constantly seen a Jesus who keeps on surprising He just surprises us page after page in the Gospels. Now, as we study these passages, you realize they are more than stories. They happen in real life, of course, but they are a a wonderful privilege we have. They're like windows into the mind and heart of Jesus. So that what we read, we are actually looking through Jesus' eyes to see how he saw people and how he saw life and how he related to the Father and, and how he saw the world around him. And it's a great and helpful thing for us. It's no surprise when we come to our passage tonight in Luke chapter 5 that we see another unexpected move by Jesus. He does something that really is kind of off the charts in some ways. Now, I like to use a word that really helps me to understand and put this in context, and it is the word worldview. Uh, Worldview is not a very complicated word. Uh, It's like we have this lens that we see life through, that we see people through, that we see God, that we see others, and all those kinds of things. And we all see those variety of people and things in life in a different kind of way, which may or may not be accurate. If you were given a, a set of glasses with bright blue lens tonight and you put them on, everything around you would look bright blue. Or if it, were, if it was a, a red lens glass that you received tonight, you'd say, my goodness, you look so red tonight or those kinds of things. But what if the glasses that we're wearing are not red or blue, but glasses that say, you know, I don't really matter very much in life. I bring very little to the table of this thing called life. If we see through those lens, we will have our lives affected in terms of how we live our lives and how we affect others as well. We will even read the Bible differently or hear a message like this differently if we see all of life in, those fa- in that fashion. I recall my own struggle in this area uh, as a student years ago. Uh, when I was in school I did really, really well academically in every subject except one <laughs> and it was a struggle. Uh, it was very apparent as I was a young child that I had some problems with speech and just forming words and getting letters right and all those kind of things, and, and uh, it was very helpful to get the help I could during that, that time of my life. Uh, my low point socially in all of life came during high school on a fall afternoon. You see, how do you remember it's a fall afternoon? Uh, you, you won't forget this one. Um, it's just when you go experience uh, that kind of low point in your life, It sticks with you. I was in high school. Now I should tell you, my high school had 6,000 boys uh, near the downtown Chicago. Uh, A very interesting place, tough place. Uh, Many of my classmates, I'm happy to report, are now released from federal institutions after these years and doing much better. Um, But it was a tough place. And if you had a, a term that would describe the opposite of nurturing, this was it, okay? It was just a rough place. My speaking issues made the mandatory speech class an hour of terror every time it occurred. It was awful. I hated it. And one speech particularly we were asked to give uh, was uh, a dramatic presentation of some historical event. I still remember every bit of it. And I chose to speak on the Oklahoma land rush. And in my mind, I crafted this beautiful speech, you know, and if you know the story, the the covered wagons lined up in this row, and uh, this open plain was in front of them, and when the guns sounded, they would all take off and rush across the plains and chart out this piece of property that they could homestead and call it their own. Now, as I, I, I formed this speech, I wanted it to be dramatic, as the teacher required, and and so my wagons, when the guns sounded, were to dash madly across the plains. Well, the guns sounded in my speech... And unfortunately, my wagons mashed badly across the plains. And uh, my class didn't miss it. They howled with laughter. And for the next five minutes, it was catcalls from the, from the class. And I still remember my teacher. She tried so valiantly to rescue me. But she just simply was no match for this group. And uh, I got through it and sat down. And that day, my worldview was deeply affected and it led to me to two very important decisions. One, public speaking would be not, not my thing. I would not do that in my life. Whatever was going to go, it was not going to be that. And secondly, I would go into engineering, put me in a lab, give me something to, f- to solve or fix or discover, and I'll do my reports and file my reports, and I'd be a happy camper. Now, it's interesting, looking back on where I've landed, I've gained tremendous respect for God's sense of humor. It's one of his attributes. I really think it is. And uh, that sense of humor is really evident in the passage we're going to look at today. As God is about to launch a tremendous global movement of sorts that would affect the lives of millions of people and their eternal salvation. And he places the, the... the responsibility for this movement to happen in the hands of four young men who knew nothing about such things. He's saying, you've got to be kidding. And yet Jesus did it. And apparently through the lens Jesus was looking through, he saw something in the lives of these four men and others who would join them that caught his eye. Now let's let's set the stage for this passage in Luke chapter 5. In the previous passage, we see Jesus declaring his mission. He goes public and he says, I'm here for this purpose, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to give sight to blind eyes, to free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim this is the time for God's favor to come. The mission Sounds to me extremely exciting. Unfortunately, the hearers of that day did not agree. Enraged listeners who had different agendas and different worldviews and saw Jesus very differently than we do were angered by him. Yet undeterred, Jesus continued in his mission, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, large numbers of people. It was wonderful. And meanwhile, as this is all happening, there are these four men. Their names are Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we're later to find out. And they were fishing. Now certainly they were aware of Jesus. They attended the meetings, the gatherings that Jesus conducted. They embraced his teaching. They liked him a lot. He liked them. And they were fishermen. They kept at their jobs. Now that preface let's take a look at the passage in Luke chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 and uh, follow along please in your Bibles or iPads phones what things that you have there that has God's word on it Luke chapter 5 one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret that is the sea of Galilee the people were crowding around him listening to the word of God he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets." When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats on the shore. They left everything and followed him. One day, it's a great phrase in the Bible because it signals something special is about to happen. These first century fantastic four we're on the shore of Galilee. They're on a break after a worthless, frustrating night of catching absolutely nothing in their fishing excursion. Jesus arrives and he leads an impromptu teaching session there on the shore. The crowd kind of gathers and builds and they're pressing around Jesus, probably backing him toward the water. So finally, he gets into a boat he pushes the boat off a few yards and teaches that morning's message from the boat. Servage concludes. It's a great time. Good time. Everybody enjoy. Great message. And what follows starts this surprise rolling as Jesus calls to these frustrated fishermen. Hey, let's try fishing again. A suggestion that was not met with enthusiasm. However, the result shocked everyone. Two huge boatloads of fish that nearly sunk the boats. Now, while impressive, the haul of fish here is not the expected thing that took place. It really wasn't a big deal for Jesus to do that. But rather, what came next? Now, the quantity of fish certainly got everyone's attention. There was a buzz on shore that day. But the real shocker came next as Jesus speaks. They're looking at the fish, they're kind of wowed by the whole thing, and Jesus speaks, hey, don't be afraid, from now on you'll be catching men, people. Now there are two truths here that I think can really challenge us, and they're going to stretch us a little bit, and I think change the lens that we look through to see life and to see God and to see ourselves. The first one is this, that we need to explore, how does Jesus see you? Big question. How does Jesus see you? Answered very curiously in this passage by this phrase, you will be catching men. Now Jesus embarked on the most profound high-risk mission in world history. We read about it earlier, where Jesus said, I came for this great task of proclaiming good news to the poor and healing people and freeing those who are oppressed and proclaiming God's favor and all the rest of that. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's summarized like this, and it's pretty powerful. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for example, it says this. The Son of Man came, and this is the reason he came, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is, Jesus loves lost people. Jesus enjoys reaching out to people who are far from him, People of all stripes and places, he loves reaching them. And then this second summary statement, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared. Okay, what is the reason Jesus came? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That is, as much as Jesus loves lost people, he hates what havoc Satan has caused to these people, and to us. Those are big now this season of history this mission of Jesus is pivotal and what Jesus is doing here is something that's never been done before in the history of the world the redemption of mankind the payment for sin that is so needed the transformation of people as they're related to God for all eternity as well as for here on earth The eventual defeat of Satan and all the pain and suffering and garbage he has brought upon people. This is huge. This is the key moment in God's movement to reach the world, defeat Satan, and save people. I love it. But the interesting part to me in this story and the unexpected part of Jesus here is how he plans to implement all of this. His strategy is not only unexpected, it's a train wreck ready to happen. What was he thinking when he says this? He sees four young men and asks them, invites them, to play the lead role in this drama. Now imagine, four under-equipped, unskilled, untrained, untested, men some by the way were still high school age students take heart you are very vital in God's plans now we have to think about this because we look through the lens of history as we look at Peter the great preacher who wins thousands in a single day to Jesus but Peter was nowhere near that point in his life when Jesus is speaking And he and the others who would join him to form this early band of 12 disciples actually appear very ordinary. Notice something else that's helpful here. This miracle of the fish really shook Peter to the core of his life and reveals something extremely important about him. The first response Peter has to the miracle is that he blurts out these rather strange words. While on his knees before Jesus, "Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man." Now we read that kind of biblically, but think about that. Do you really want Jesus to leave you? What are you saying here? Now understand, Peter is not a theologian. And when he says this, he's not thinking Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I'm part of that verse, and you know how we think of those things. He's thinking real sinful things. He was fragile. He was a moral failure. And in the presence of Jesus and Jesus' holiness, these weaknesses were extremely obvious. Peter is saying, in effect, listen, I am capable of doing stupid things And saying stupid things, and when my life's on the line, I will even deny you, I'm capable of that, and indeed he was, and probably some of us are shaking our heads saying, I could do that too, and I, yeah, I'm capable of those things, but all of this is still not the main point in Peter's confession you know, we must understand something about the the culture of this time and what's taking place, the the dynamics of this relationship. It's so different than ours. We, we tend to um, live in a guilt-innocent kind of uh, culture today. And that was really not the, the, the core of, of life in the first century. When Peter's thinking of his sinfulness, he's really not saying and focusing so much that he, he lied four times last week and he stole an orange from the... Market and he lost his temper with uh, James and John for following up the nets again and again and again. That's really not what he's thinking here. His culture was based upon shame and honor. These were the values that undergirded life in Jesus' day. Beyond the specific sins, that certainly needed forgiveness. So when Peter is saying here, I'm a sinful man, the emphasis is on I me Jesus I am small Jesus I'm worthless I am living in shame in your very presence at who I am and what I have become friends this goes way beyond doing wrong things it's where Peter is saying listen I am nothing I am nobody the problem here is me and I am a failure I am ashamed And in a nutshell, that describes the worldview of Peter and how he saw himself. And Jesus, I deserve you to leave me on my own in my situation, in this shame. But Jesus is the unexpected Jesus. And he sees something very different in this man. He speaks directly to the issue of Peter's shame. And what he does is he gives him honor. Jesus goes even beyond forgiveness here. And the first thing he says is is to impart honor to this man. Peter, you are somebody. You are needed. You are vital. You are valuable. In fact, I am calling you to be part of this team of followers that is about to embark on changing the world. I think many of us live under the weight of shame in our lives. I do. Wondering if we have anything of real value to offer to God. We see it in this passivity of American Christianity that's so far from the biblical pattern of a Christ follower. And I want to say that Jesus, I think, sees something in you that maybe you don't see in yourself. He wants to honor you. He wants to be a part of what you're doing and have you part of what he is doing today. I remember this very vividly. We were teaching in Peru and um, we we conduct ITIs or International Training Institute classes. and. And I was teaching a class that was speaking about the, the issue of grace and God's grace and all those kind of things. And you know, just phenomenal time. But this, this, we were stuck. And this whole issue of grace was simply not getting through. And I was kind of trying to explain and all this and that. And I, I had this idea. I said, okay, stop for a moment. Let's see if we can talk about this differently. And so I asked for a volunteer. And I said, we're going to act out the story of the prodigal son. And I have a volunteer, and I had eager volunteers, and it was great. So I played the part of the father. I was older, so it makes sense. And then this young, young man over here was the prodigal. And we talked through the story, and he acted it out. He was phenomenal. He, just, he was incredible, acting out with got great humor and great insight, the story of the prodigal son. The part of the story came where the prodigal is returning And as he walked toward me up in the front, I thought, well, I'm going to jump into this as well. So I grabbed him by the shoulder and I said to him, son, he tried to interrupt with his confession. He said, son, listen to me a minute. I want you to know how much I love you, how valuable you are to me, how much joy it is that you have come home. I am just delighted in you as a person. And as we're doing this, suddenly I see tears running down his face but this guy's good. I mean, the whole class is engaged. They're with it, and they're kind of like, whoa. And I spoke some more words of affirmation over him, and he suddenly just breaks down. Emotionally, literally just kind of collapses in front of the class. So I said, let's take a break, class. Uh, I needed to find out what's going on here. And as he told me the story, it was very interesting. He said, I don't know what happened to me, but when you said those words to me, I realized I had never had anyone in my life ever tell me that they loved me, ever. My father would beat me. He refused to acknowledge who I was. And I lived under this shame of being worthless. And when you said that, I suddenly realized, oh, maybe my father in heaven really does love me. I think there are tragic misconceptions floating around that we are tempted to buy into. That God uses the smartest, gifted, most gifted, the most talented people on earth. That he has this extensive disciple job description that he has carved in stone in his hand as he's looking down from heaven saying, wanted, young, energetic, beautiful, brilliant men and women with great public speaking skills and brilliant minds and experts in biblical studies, preferably with advanced theological degrees, and righteous in most every way. And the danger is we can have this image of God that says if we do not possess those things, if we're not gifted in these areas, then you're nothing. You really don't matter. You exist with no vital purpose or role to play in the work of God. Just put your time in, be a nice person, and wait till God brings you to heaven. That's what it's all about. And I'd like to shatter that worldview before you today because that thinking is not how Jesus sees you, and it's not true. And I'd like to have you see you for who you are. Here's a project for you. You don't have to do it now. There's not enough time in this setting. But imagine if Jesus was sitting next to you and he was gazing into your face, into your eyes, just you and him together in a quiet place, and he's just with you, and he's looking at you. And then he speaks about you. What do you think he'd say? What would he want to tell you? I'd like to steer you down this road to consider this. I wonder if Jesus would say something to this effect. You know, I see something in you that I like. I like what I see. Are you feeling ordinary? Maybe not all your theologies is in, in all lined up together. It's okay. Do you feel unprepared for life? Don't measure up? Maybe you're not as talented as others? That's fine boy, one day I had four fishermen, you wouldn't believe what I had to work with. You're good, you're good. In fact, I like to push this unexpected out where it belongs and say this, that God delights. In fact, God prefers to work through ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. People just like us. When I was researching, researching people in my book, Unleashed, I was so impressed, impressed with the people we work with. I, they are amazing, amazing people, and the difference they're making in the world. But what stood out to me uh, was um, they were also ordinary. <laughs> I mean, they, they weren't the Billy Grahams of the world. They were just ordinary people. And men and women, I, I, I thought, what makes them so special? I mean, what's the commonality here with these people? Let me tell you about a person who's a friend of ours. Some of us here in this room know him. His name is Abdullah. Abdullah, actually, when you talk to him, is a gracious, kind, humble person. You would like him. Abdullah, however, some years back, was a member of a global terrorist organization that if I mention, you would know it very, very well. And in the city where he lived, um, which... Uh, was a, in a difficult place in the world. The gospel was at work, and there was a group of people who were coming to Christ, and, and there was a small church that met. And Abdullah got together with his friends, and as part of their work with this cell, they went over to the home of these Christians to kill them. They were going to put an end, they were going to stamp out the gospel in their community. And as he and his group went over to the house, he told us, We looked in the house, and the Christians were praying we thought for a moment, probably not a good idea to kill these people while they're praying to their God. That doesn't seem right. So let's come back later and kill them when they're not praying. So that a day passed, and in God's providence, he ran into the Christians in his community. And they were so kind to him. And they shattered all the misconceptions he had about what Christians were about. And in fact, they helped his business And they became deep friends. And over time, Abdullah came to know Jesus as his personal savior. It's a great story. But now, Abdullah went public, and he was now the target for being killed. And one night, his former friends came to his house. They locked his doors and windows so he could not escape and set his house on fire. He was going to burn to death. Abdullah knew very little bit about the gospel, a little bit about God's, but one of his lessons that his, his Christian friends taught him was the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he thought, Well, Lord, I don't know. Um, he said a little bit more seriously than that, obviously. If you help these three men in the Bible, could you help me? I need you. I'm in these flames. Would you help? And as he prayed, he opened his eyes, and there was another man in the room who let him out through the wall, outside, and he was safe. Now, let your theology figure out what happened there. However, it's interesting that now he has become a church planter, reaching people in his country, in his area, for Jesus Christ, and does a great job of it. An ordinary man, having a significant impact for, for the gospel. So what is God looking for in his followers? Is there a trait or traits that catch his eye? Now I think this story in Luke chapter 5 is a great help to us. It's clear as the story unfolds that Peter thinks Jesus' idea of casting nets in the sea is really a bad idea. He is not sympathetic to this idea. And it's almost as if Peter is saying, Lord, we respect your knowledge of the Bible. You're a great Bible teacher, but frankly, we know fishing more than you know fishing. We've been there, we're tired, we want to go home. This is not a good thing. But then the very best thing about Peter surfaces, and this is what I want to pass on to you. Peter makes this statement, this is not great, but then he says this, but because you say so, because you say so, I'll do it. We call it faith. We call it trust. Trust. A trust in Jesus even when it doesn't make sense to do what he says to do. A trust in the word of God when we don't feel like doing what the word of God tells us to do. Because you say so, Lord, I'll do it. I'll do it. And it becomes one of the the essentials of Peter's life and a follower of Christ. Now there's a second truth here I want us to see more quickly. And that is, how does Jesus see the world? How does Jesus see the world? Now, in this miracle, it's interesting to make the connection. We isolate things way too much in our study of the scriptures. And I want you to think about what's going on here and seeing the big picture. Connect what Jesus said with what Jesus does. you got these boatloads of fish flopping all over the place. And these fishermen wide-eyed trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. I mean, they've never seen anything like this, even in their fishing stories that they tell their buddies. I mean, this is really out there. And they're furiously scrambling to keep the fish inside the boat and Jesus speaks, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. Now that's a head-turner. Like, what did he say? From now on you're going to be catching men. There's a mission, there's a job for you. Which had to sound daunting, which is probably why Jesus prefaced it by saying, don't be afraid. (laughs) See the connection. Their calling to catch men comes on the heel of this abundant catch of fish. Obviously something supernatural was involved here. Obviously something of God's doing. As if to say from Jesus, when I talk about catching men, This is what I'm talking about. Look at the boats. Look at the fish. You know, there are different ways to look at the world. Yes, it's a tough place. Horrific crimes. ISIS-style terrorism. Abuse of the vulnerable. Politics. The rocky season. I mean, we can really jump into depression in a hurry here. And Christians can develop their own version of fatalism. Oh, it's getting worse and worse. and It's all getting so bad. There's no hope. Oh, Jesus would just come. And I get that. I understand that. Many of us have seen terrible things in life, and we have experienced those kinds of pain. And we're embedded as a church in some very challenging situations. I see that. But we need to get our heads on straight when we look at the world and see through the lens that Jesus saw. Their calling that day to catch men, to catch people, was tied and illustrated by this enormous catch and haul of fish. Not a handful of minnows, boatloads, boatloads of fish. The miracle and the calling are connected. Jesus would later expand on this calling to include his own very detailed worldview. In chapter 10 of Luke, it says this that after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him in every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Now note this, the harvest is plentiful, present tense, right now in this horrible world in which we live. It is a bumper crop, it is a boatload ready to be harvested now. And as Jesus saw it, the real problem is not, nor has ever been, the world's badness but rather a lack of workers to do the harvesting that is out there. The problem, friends, is a labor shortage. A people who will say to Jesus, I don't get it, it makes no sense, but because you say so, because you say so, we will do it. I want to introduce you to another of my ordinary friends. Quiet man, he is not flashy. If you were to uh, analyze him in personality type, he would say he has a terribly low self-esteem. Doesn't stand out in the crowd. But listen to his story.
1: الشعب الدروز الموحدين عم يحاولوا عم يحاولوا بقدر المستطاع يبحثوا عن الفرح والسلام في ديانتون لكن الأسف الشديد ما في فرح والسلام غير عند رب يسوع المسيح المدينة إسلامي بوعمليه كتاب معين، فهن فعلًا مغلقين وصعب اختراق جدًا يعني حتى للشخص ال أنا قلبي انشغل فين كتير بإنه شفته جماعه جماعة كتير طيبين ولا بالكلام. ويرحبوا بالواحد ويسهلوا بالواحد وشفتوا بنفس نفس الوقت نظره اخرى بانهم كثير 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 ضائعين لهذا السبب انشغل قلبي على الدروز وحبيت اصلي لرب يسوع يا رب هالناس كثير طيبين يا رب لكن مش عارفين ويا رايحين أصل كله يا رب فارجوك يا يسوع أنا من غير محافظة وجيت لهذا المكان طيب يا رب أنت ليش جبتني لهون مش أنا عائلة وحدة بس أعطيني أعطيني بأنه موهبة من عندك يا رب لأنه أنا بقواي يا رب أنا فشلت ما في سمر يا رب يوم من أيام عم شوف إنه الباب عم يخبط فتحت الباب شوف ناس ما بعرفوا بيني أنتوا خلينا نحن في عنا مريض مريض بدك تجي تصليم أجله فأنا رحت معنا على البيت وشفت المريضة بالبيت ومعها كاسر وكان عندي كل إيمان راح صليله رح تشفى وفعلا بعد اسبوع عملوا التحاليل طلعت مش فيش فيه شفاء كامل ما في ما سرطان نهائيا انا انا كثير فرحان انا كثير فرحان بانه بسبب الموهبه اللي رب اعطاها لعبده هي موهبه الشفاء بانه بلش الناس ترفع المسيح هذا الفرع عظيم جدا لا يقدر بثمن
0: He's one of our partners with Gospel Unleashed and uh, a good friend of this church. What God keeps doing through ordinary people, it's amazing. You know, there are a lot of challenges in this world. we groan with the world and its pain. So does Jesus. And yet this is also our call to action. He sees a harvest of people ready and he's advancing his mission. Now, here's the point. Far from being insignificant or an observer, an observer in all of this, you here are a great value to God and a significant part of his plan. He has chosen you. He honors you with a top-level role in his kingdom work to play. Now, the what and aware where of that is different for every one of us and in different seasons of life for sure. And yet Jesus trusts you in this calling. I'm so thankful for this church. I get to see lots of things that happen through the ministries of this church. Here at church and in the community and in the world. It's been an amazing, amazing time and an amazing year for us. So positive to see what's going on. And what again impresses me is through ordinary people like us. Like a retired teacher who leads an army of intercessors. Like moms and grandmas who teach refugee women. Like people with skills like crocheting and writing and giving and cooking and loving kids. I've seen seven-year-old kids lead other seven-year-old kids to Jesus on a street corner in South America. Of business people who use their gifts to enable vital ministry to take place. Most all of whom would say we are nothing special. We are ordinary. But you see, you are extraordinary. And there's a simple truth and beauty to the gospel that we must see ourselves and the people around us through the lens that Jesus sees. Author Jeff Lucas captured this experience of being involved in in the gospel, and he says, This we've been wonderfully ruined treated to a vision of the kingdom of God. We've heard the melody of the good news so that the music of mere survival is just a monstrous drone. So true, we've been wonderfully ruined. Well, the passage in Luke chapter 5 ends very simply. They parked their boats on shore. They left everything. They followed Jesus. That's it. Now, God may use you to reach an entire lost people group like you've seen in the story, or maybe not. Maybe it's going to be a neighbor. Maybe it's going to be a coworker. Maybe it's going to be a, a family member. Through these four young men, God worked to change the world causing C.S. Lewis to finally remark, capturing what God does, when he said, there are no ordinary people. (laughs) There aren't. I've been impressed over these recent weeks and months to be praying Luke chapter 10 and verse 2, asking the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for his harvest field. And I think of all the opportunities that we have as a church, ShareFest coming up in a few weeks, being involved, serving in one of our ministries at church with children, with uh, ushering and hospitality, whatever it might be. Gospel initiatives, prayer teams, mission trips, whatever it might be. You don't need a PhD to do this. You don't have to have your super Christian certificate hanging on your wall to do this. You just got to follow Jesus. And even when it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Lord, because you said so, I'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you see us as you do with grace, with honor, with forgiveness. Lord, that as you look at us through your eyes, you see people that mean everything to you. People that you were willing to die for on a cross. Lord, that's the value that you've placed on us. Lord, we are are thankful for your commitment to people and to us. And, Lord, we confess, like with Peter, our struggle to believe this. We need you, Lord. We need that set of glasses to see life and to see you and to see ourselves as you'd have us. Lord, we struggle with this invitation that you give to people. And yet in our struggle, we say with Peter, because you say it, Lord, we will do it. Lord, we don't know what awaits us, what this all means. Lord, we love you. And we pray that you would work in us to accomplish your purposes. Lord, we pray for us as a church. You would lead us in paths and ways that would be pleasing to you and impact others. Lord, we pray for the Melkis and the Abdullah's who sit in this audience that you have plans for, plans for good. So Lord Jesus, as we worship, as we come before you, we pray that you would speak to us. That we'd hear your words that we understand your heart. Lord, that you'd work in us. For we ask this in the name of Jesus.
2: To the state, Lord, I come, I confess, bowing near, I find my rest without you. sin runs deep, your grace is When temptation comes my way When I cannot stand I fall on you faith can move the mountains, let the mountains move, come. So take the small